Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. While the war wages in the Ukraine, a few states in the U.S. have waged war on the lives of trans and gender diverse people. Although President Joe Biden has stepped in, there is still a troubling anti-trans sentiment that fueled orders and legislation in both Texas and Florida that would, in essence, make it illegal for parents to seek gender-affirming care for their trans children calling it child abuse. Here in Canada, there is more optimism. Riley Nielsen-Baker is a trans policy advocate out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. They hold a Master's of Public Administration from Dalhousie University and are currently studying for their Master's of Arts in Political Science at Dal with a focus on Canadian politics and the legal concept of the trans person in Canada. Riley is the author of a new policy which would revolutionize gender-affirming care for transgender, gender-diverse, and intersex people in Nova Scotia. This policy is grounded in the philosophy of community-based policy, placing trans, gender-diverse, and intersex people in the center of their care. The policy has support of nearly 40 organizations across Canada and will make the province the most progressive on transgender, gender-diverse, and intersex healthcare in Canada. Riley has ingrained support for those requiring gender-affirming care in rural contexts in the heart of this policy, as half of Nova Scotians live outside of the Halifax core access to healthcare in general, let alone gender-affirming healthcare, 
is incredibly difficult and often costly. This policy will help close the healthcare gap, not only between the cisgender and the 2S LGBTQIA plus community as a whole, but will also address the rural-urban healthcare divide that often leaves the rural queer community behind. Okay, Riley, walk us through what gender-affirming care actually is and why it is essential, especially in rural Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Gender-affirming care is uh, the process of going through medical transition, going through social transition. Typically, it is seen as more of the former of that process. That means accessing things such as HRT, uh, hormone replacement therapy, including um, estrogen, testosterone, and hormone blockers. It's also about surgeries, top surgeries for uh, breast removal or breast augmentation, bottom surgeries such as uh, vaginoplasty or phalloplasty, as typically people think about for gender-affirming care. But it's also things such as body contouring, tracheal shave to remove the Adam's apple, Anything really, realistically, that allows someone who identifies as transgender, gender diverse, or intersex to live their best life, to feel comfortable in their body, and allow them to best experience the world in the way that they intend to. And why do you think it's so critical, especially in rural Canada? It's so critical in rural Canada because we tend to live in these contexts in rural Canada in which we don't believe, I say believe because the reality is a lot of people have interacted with transgender, intersex, non-binary, gender diverse people without even realizing it most of the time. This care is important, especially in rural contexts because trans healthcare and healthcare in general is already limited in these contexts, uh, let alone responsible healthcare, responsive healthcare that addresses the needs of this community that is already vastly underserved. You think about accessing a doctor for anyone in a rural context here in Canada, and it's already incredibly difficult. Now imagine accessing a doctor that has the background and understanding to provide healthcare for a trans person. And that's not just prescribing and recommending for gender affirming care, but that's actually knowing their care needs in general and general practice. By expanding gender-affirming care in these contexts, we can create a society both within and without medicine that better understands trans people, that better respects trans people and normalizes the experiences of trans people. By allowing this to become normalized, we create a greater acceptance of trans people in Canada, especially in these rural contexts where it's already difficult enough for everyone to access essential services like healthcare to live their best life at the end of the day. This is potentially history-making policy and you wrote it. I mean, you had a hand in writing this really revolutionary policy. What led you to creating it? Well, I first want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of this original work was based on the work that was done in in the Yukon about a year ago. Uh, The Yukon released a similar policy 
not as extensive in scope as what we have done here in Nova Scotia, but I want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of this is based on what happened in Yukon. And they, those, of the, the, those who worked up in the Yukon on the gender affirming care policy up there deserve all the credit for really allowing this push to be more receptible here in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada. We started, and I say we because I, I, it's a collective movement. It's a collective effort that has been passed through this community, both here in Nova Scotia and in Canada. And we've been very lucky to also get some international attention as well. It started, I was originally a part of a group uh, that was looking to make some important changes here in Nova Scotia. I was the policy expert in that group and their parliamentarian. And I was floating around a couple of ideas at the time. One about housing reform to help deal with the housing crisis that's occurring here in Nova Scotia, both here in HRM, Halifax Regional Municipality, and especially across all of Nova Scotia. We're all struggling with the the housing crisis and the, poten the, the potential worsening of it as we move forward. But also a piece on gender affirming care. Um, as someone who's currently trying to navigate that system here in Nova Scotia, it's very difficult. And I have taken the time to research that policy even beforehand, and even I'm struggling with it to this day. So I was floating these two policy ideas and talking to a couple members of the group that I was participating with. And a member of the group, a trans woman, came up to me and said, hey, I think that you should work on this. I think you should focus on this because we can make it an issue for the election, the upcoming provincial election, which occurred about six months ago here in Nova Scotia. Uh, and we could make it so that we could see some real change in the system here. So with her encouragement, I decided to take the first steps. And it was originally intended to kind of be a list of requests, a, a list of requests that we were going to bring forward to a couple of political parties here in Nova Scotia and say, hey, we've known this system has been broken since it was introduced 10 years ago. We know how to fix it. We are the trans, intersex, and non-binary community. We know how to fix it. So listen to us, community-based policy. Here are you know, 10 to 15 to 20 requests that we would like to see in the system. Maybe we can get these parties to agree to a handful of them uh, and see some real change after the election. But then when I actually started writing the work, I realized that it was actually something much better than this. It was actually pretty decent work and I was very satisfied with it. And a decision was kind of made with encouragement of people around me that, no, let's actually not make this election issue. Because then it's politicized. And when you make trans lives and trans healthcare politicized, then there's a conversation about the existence of trans people in the first place, whether or not this should be publicly funded, whether or not this is cosmetic or medically necessary. And that's not a debate. It's not a debate. Trans lives are real. Trans people are real. Trans healthcare is life-saving medically necessary care. So uh, the decision was made basically to stop talking to the political parties um, we had been in conversation with one of the parties at the time and write something real, write something real and really ground it in the concept of community-based policy. That is the idea that communities who are experiencing a situation best know where the gaps are in the system and best know how to fix them. So with that, I started to write the initial first version of the policy. And I was very lucky to be very closely involved with some of 
local organizations here in Nova Scotia that do a lot of advocacy um, on queer issues, on trans issues. So I started to have conversations with them just because I had friends who either worked for these organizations such as the Youth Project or even were the executive directors of some of these organizations like NSRAP and had them, you know, critique the policy. And it ended up kind of being this expansion outwards. Uh, Of course, ground, we did a first jurisdictional scan. We looked at what other jurisdictions were doing, what other governments were doing, both in Canada and around the world. And the, the best thing we could find at the time after we started to look into this issue was the Yukon. And we were so impressed with how they really found grounded their working community-based policy. And they didn't politicize the issue. It was not a legislated issue. It was something that was done internally where there wasn't a need to have a vote on a bill. It was just changing the criteria by which we provide gender-affirming care and what qualifies a gender-affirming care and what the public health system would actually cover. We then started to expand outward outward even more, talking to other organizations and individuals, really grounding it in, you know, the Nova Scotia experience uh, with a particular focus on rural communities because they are the most impacted by a lack of resources in the trans community by far. I've spoken to so many people who they can't find a healthcare practitioner to in general, let alone one that has a background or any knowledge whatsoever in trans healthcare, let alone gender affirming care. And some people were having to drive three, four hours to come into Halifax or go into Cape Breton regional municipality and get the care that they need. And that's absurd. That's not, that's, it's ridiculous that you shouldn't have to go multiple hours and pay out of pocket and travel multiple times back and forth in order to get the care that you need, especially when the barriers for gender-affirming care are so high. A lot of people think, um, as is the political discourse, that anyone can walk in, get hormones, walk in, get a surgery, walk in and get the treatment they need. It is so extremely gay-kept, even here in Nova Scotia and here in Canada, where trans people are a lot less politicized and a lot more normalized, I should say. I should not say that we're politically accepted because there is still a huge pushback against the trans community and still we still have a long way to go here in Canada to really create a very safe and very accepting society for trans people. I don't want to negate that reality that trans people still experience more violence, more harassment, uh, higher levels of poverty. Um, which is part of why this policy is so important. But we wanted to really ground this in the fact that a huge chunk of our trans community here in Nova Scotia lives in rural contexts, and they struggle to get healthcare in the first place, let alone gender-affirming healthcare. And they will repeatedly have to drive several hours because you need several recommendations from different people in order to even get on the wait list for these surgeries. And I've heard wait lists... uh, I've heard of people who've been waiting 11 years to get surgery. Wow. Uh, Not because they don't need it or there's questions about their transness, which is a huge problem in this process as as well. And something that I have experienced when I was originally getting my assessment for uh, chest masculinization surgery, mastectomy, uh, I was asked because I don't have a need to go on hormones 
testosterone as a non-binary person that for me personally, I don't feel the need to go on hormones. I was asked if I was trans enough for top surgery, which is ludicrous. I know my needs and I have heard, I always like to, to preface my experience is one of the more positive ones in the gender affirming care series system. I've heard absolute abhorrent things from people who are supposed to be trans allies telling trans people about their healthcare. Oh, are you sure you don't just have a fetish? Think, things that would absolutely, and worse, things that would absolutely hor- horrify you. And imagine having to drive two plus hours to get an assessment and then be, be have something so horrific said to you. Um, so we grounded this in a couple of ways for the rural community specifically. One, to reduce the amount of recommendations that anyone requires so if you're traveling several hours, you don't need to do it multiple times, but also focusing on reducing those barriers to access. A lot of times trans people are more likely to live in poverty and including in rural contexts. Many of them don't have access to a car, let alone time to travel multiple hours, several, uh, both ways in order to access these services. So providing them funding an application for funding so that they can get their travel and costs covered if they are forced to travel to access gender-affirming care. And really focusing on increasing support for healthcare providers. A lot of times uh, I hear, I've heard from members of the nurses union especially, that they are completing their education to become healthcare practitioners and they feel woefully unprepared to practice medicine because if trans people are covered at all in their education, it is maybe a week or it is an elective and it's rarely even considered uh, uh, provided as an elective. So they're going out into the world and these are people who are working both in specialized fields such as endocrinology or in more general medicine or in, in emergency departments. They're not able and they don't feel able to provide healthcare to trans people because they don't understand. So providing funding to better integrate and require that not just trans people, but members of the 2SLGBTQIA plus community are included in medical education so that the next generation of healthcare practitioners, including healthcare practitioners that are in rural areas are able to provide these, this care and understand the context in which trans healthcare exists and reduce those barriers to access for everyone. So you don't have to walk around and we, uh, we all talk about the healthcare waitlist here in Nova Scotia. It's super long for everyone. It's twice as long for trans people. And if you're lucky, if you even can find someone who is willing to take a trans person in general, a lot of times you will hear, I don't, I don't know. So I'm not going to provide, I can't provide you health because I don't know. Or even worse, more underhanded, bigoted experiences where they're just denied access for being trans by approaching this from the the fundamental points of education and access we create environments that are actually able to provide trans people even a base level of care let alone gender affirming care i i can't even imagine so that's exactly what i was thinking about is you know being in a little town and having two doctors tops for the whole town exactly and maybe they're in their sunset of their career. So perhaps 
maybe not as educated in more modern or accepted ways um, Mm -hmm. and how traumatizing that would be to a young person to, you know, have the courage to actually go to a physician and say, I need help, or I I want to explore this, or I want to be myself and, and having any kind of ridicule, any kind of marginalization in general, just Mm -hmm. I. My heart is uh, heavy. And it's the same thing. It's very similar to the experiences of members of the BIPOC community in a way where their education, you look at studies that have come out recently where doctors fundamentally believe that members of the Black and African community uh, experience less pain. It's the same internalized biases that completely destroy our healthcare system and make services more difficult for marginalized people that just need to be fundamentally addressed with education. And we are providing that funding so that they are able to get that education and better be better prepared to serve the everyone who walks in the door. It is revolutionary. And I hope it changes a lot of things. You have a lot of support. You have had letters of support. Can you name a couple of the organizations that have given you letters of support? Yeah, of course. Uh, Starting here in Nova Scotia, of course, um, the AIDS Coalition in Nova Scotia. We've had the Cape Breton Transgender Network, which is a local organization as well. Uh, Through pride networks across Nova Scotia, we've had support, uh, especially from rural areas for women's centers um, for people who are experiencing domestic violence or other uh, sexualized violence. Uh, We've had support from faith communities. We've had support from social workers, especially. We've been very lucky to have wide support across the social social work community. Mental health and policy community, such as the Canadian Mental Health Association and the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. We have been lucky and blessed for choice of the supporters who have come forward. Um, and it's important to note that we don't just ask people to support. It's very important to me that the first thing that comes when we approach uh, an organization to ask for support, that they first become consultants on the, on the project. We ask everyone, we want you to first poke as many holes as possible as you can in our policy. Tell us where we failed. Um, because we don't know where we failed, especially uh, you probably know the feeling of when you've looked at your own work for so long, you, it becomes, you, you stop seeing things. Uh, so you need those fresh eyes. And so we've been very lucky that people have taken the time first to review the policy, to critique the policy. Um, and we've been very lucky that people have been very open with us about how we failed. Uh, we are currently doing a, uh, our eighth round of revisions, and we've been very lucky with organizations such as Lambda Health uh, and um, some others that are not yet publicly supporters, but they're in the process of becoming public supporters to help us really revise um, the section on funding education in these schools because they approach that. Uh, and I openly admit that education policy is not my forte. Uh, that's where, you know, you get experts to come in and help you. And very much the the approach that we were planning to take was the creation of electives, which would be free to take. But electives aren't core courses, which means that even if it's free to take, people aren't going to take it. So instead, working on integrating trans and 2SLGBTQIA plus perspectives into the core coursework 
I've learned is actually the better approach. We've, we've had very, very good luck on our supporters, uh, not only agreeing to support, but when we ask them to actively engage, they've been actively engaging, which is excellent. We're talking about healthcare uh, as it, as it relates to transgendered individuals. Mm -hmm. And what about education in general in rural communities? Mm -hmm. How critical is it that gender diverse people be supported and feel safe in their own communities? How do we, how do we educate people? I think the first step is exposure to people who are from the trans, intersex, and gender diverse community. Um, I mean, we look at what's going on in Florida and we look at what's going on in Texas, especially right now, where providing access to gender affirming care or allowing a child to transition is now codified as child abuse, which is abhorrent. We have to first normalize the existence of trans people, first by recognizing that trans people have always existed. And the reason that people aren't seeing us throughout history is because we've been actively erased, just as women have been actively erased, just as people of color have been actively erased from history. Trans people and intersex people and gender diverse people have been actively erased and covered up and we have to normalize our existence, not just here, but throughout history. And that comes through taking an active approach to provide educational resources. And from what I understand, uh, having friends who are teachers um, and family who are teachers, that a lot of teachers do a pretty good job, um, especially newer teachers. I can't comment on every teacher, and I can certainly tell you that I've heard horror stories, but trans acceptance and gender diverse acceptance, especially in the educational context here in Nova Scotia. But it all comes down to exposure, knowing a trans person, being exposed to queerness um, in all of its aspects, because it's all, it's all interconnected. And we only do that by creating environments in which it's safe to be trans. And that fundamentally comes from the healthcare by normalizing its provision. Uh, we normalize trans existence by having a government that says we will provide this care because it is life-saving. It helps change the narrative that has existed on trans lives. And there's as much as it is not the end all be all for most trans people. And its importance is both, not overstated and overstated, there is an element of importance to being able to pass in this current society. It does protect people. It provides a level of safety. Like I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people don't realize that they've met a trans person because they pass. And by providing gender affirming care, we provide more opportunities for people to be able to pass. And there is a level of safety that does come with that. But that first, the first step is exposing people to trans people. And that comes from education and it comes from healthcare at the end of the day. You are a relatively young person. And I hope that there isn't a lot that keeps you up at night. But what do you find troubling about the times that we're living in right now? That's a very long list. Um, 
as someone who uh, I I am a current I've completed my master's of public administration and I'm a current master's of political science student uh, at Dalhousie University, and I will keep it focused on the topic of this because I could talk for hours about what stresses me out in this this current world. Um, I will keep it focused on the the two SLGBTQI experience. As I mentioned, you looked at, at what's going on in Texas, especially, um, where there is backsliding on trans issues, especially, uh, I'm, I made a point on social media the other day that providing gender-affirming care to a child is not child abuse. Denying gender-affirming care to a child is child abuse. Um, by uh, classifying gender-affirming care for minors as child abuse, uh, if a say a parent is found guilty, does attempts to provide gender affirming care to their child, is found guilty of child abuse, and that child is put into a foster home, which, in all likelihood, will expose them to the opposite actual transphobic child abuse. We are creating environments in which it is unsafe to be trans, let alone to be unsafe to be a trans child. These these laws don't just make it so, oh, they can't transition, they can wait until they're older. It normalizes the discrimination of trans people. It normalizes the exclusion of trans people. It normalizes uh, the pathologic pathologization of trans people where we're seen as medical anomalies, people with mental disorders, people who should be excluded. And it's horrifying, especially when it's targeting children. That is the most horrific part because as a person who was not out as a gender diverse person at the time that I was in high school, but was very, very obviously gender nonconforming. Um, and the bullying that I received for being gender nonconforming, but not out, let alone being someone who was actively out, actively and proudly out, it's going to normalize bullying. It's going to normalize assault. It's going to tell children who are not trans that it's okay to be transphobic at a young age. And those are beliefs that they're going to be stuck with for the rest of their lives, unless they actively engage with them. And there is the important piece of gender affirming care, providing gender affirming care reduces risks of suicide. It actively does. We are, it, studies have shown again and again that the majority of trans people have either, or the majority, practically all trans people have experienced suicide ideation, and the majority of trans people have attempted suicide. Um, and gender affirming care, uh, accessing access to gender affirming care has been shown to significantly reduce suicide ideation and suicide attempt in all trans people. We are saying that trans suicides are acceptable and that trans suicides are a policy choice that is acceptable um, in the West, in anywhere. That is a responsibility that we all bear to actively fight back against this. It's very similar to actively being anti-racist and engaging in active anti-oppression narratives, where we have a responsibility not just to be accepting of trans people, but actively recognizing where our systems are still failing or are not just still failing, are actively choosing to fail 
members of the trans community who are incredibly vulnerable. Like I mentioned, they're more likely to experience suicide ideation. They're more likely to attempt suicide. They are more likely to live in poverty. They are more likely to be homeless, especially in childhood. It's estimated here in Canada that between 25 and 70% of youth who are homeless are members of the trans community, or at least a member of the greater 2S LGBTQI plus community. Um, that's what scares me. Not that we are denying, not just that we are denying the care to these children, but we are normalizing the otherness of trans people and exposing them to a level of violence that is going to have ramifications when these children become adults, both the trans children and the non-trans children who have now had this violence normalized for them. It's not enough for us to be allies. We have to be actively anti-oppressive. What's next in this process for you? Well, we are very happy with the progress we've made so far. This is policy is just over a year old now since we started this effort. And we have a very strong timeline that we're working with. And we're very lucky to have excellent supporters in this province and in Canada to help us move this along. Our plan is starting in May, June, July uh, to partner with pride organizations here in Nova Scotia to attend pride, to collect petition signatures, uh, to nor to very much platform this policy and bring it to the forefront of not just governments, but the forefront of society and engage with this. Have our policy supporters show that their support. Our goal basically with collecting all of these supporters was to hit a critical mass is what we're calling it, where anyone who would be brought to government, if the government were to try to attempt a policy such as this themselves uh, on a working group, They've already been, they've, they are supporters. There's no need to, basically the idea is government would reach out, say, come consult with us on this, be on our working group. And they call up these people and say, well, the work's already been done. You just need to take it. You just need to run with it. And our hope is that in the next year, that this could be the policy reality. And the important part about it is that this does not need to be a bill. It doesn't need to be legislated. It's just changing what is covered under current healthcare policy, the same way that back in November 2020, a similar effort was taken by the Nova Scotia government to allow uh, assigned female at birth AFAB people qualify for top surgeries. This doesn't need to be legislated and especially important. The only place that funds are technically allocated in this policy and increase of funding is to expand Pride Health, which is a organization within the healthcare system here in Nova Scotia that's supposed to be able to advocate help navigate, create policy, uh, help with education here in Nova Scotia on the entire 2SLGBTQIA plus community, which makes up an average of the estimates are 10 to 20% of the population of Nova Scotia. It, it, this organization, Pride Health, which is in the healthcare system, is publicly funded by government, uh, is meant to serve the entire queer community of Nova Scotia. When it was originally created, it basically only had the capacity to serve Halifax, regional municipality, central zone, as we call it in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, so you have an organization that is meant to serve all queer people in all Nova Scotian health contexts, has the capacity to only support central zone. And even worse, at full staffing, it only has two part-time employees. Uh, currently, it has one employee that is serving in both roles. And that person, um, I've 
Gary Dart is an excellent human being. They do an amazing job, but it's not meant to be on all of them. And it is a form of systemic discrimination that you've basically purposefully discriminatorily defunded this organization that's supposed to support not just the trans community, not just the intersex and gender diverse community, but the entire queer community here in Nova Scotia. Technically, the only place we allocate funds in this policy is to expand that to five full-time staff and four, time, four part-time regional coordinating staff so that you know it can actually serve the purpose it's supposed to. There's no need for this to go through the legislature. It's like any other policy. It's like the policy change that occurred in November 2020 to expand top surgeries to more people here in the province. It doesn't need to be legislated or politicized. It just needs to be adopted. Thank you for your work, number one. Thank you for being such a passionate advocate. And thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to check in on you again. Can I? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Check in, mm-hmm. check in again in August and we'll see where we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, also, I also want to mention that this is not an effort that has been done by me alone. I am very fortunate to have a, a volunteer student that came on in January and they, Carson has done an excellent job of doing research as well. This is not just me. This is a whole community and especially Carson who has been an excellent supporter. I wanted to give them a shout out. this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine a Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time. <laughs>